seeing here is basically the next main event that's going to take place after the destruction of Babylon. I believe the destruction of Babylon is going to happen uh, shortly before Jesus Christ physically returns to this earth, sets foot on this earth, and begins His millennial reign. So, uh, let's start reading though in verse 1 and just point out a few things. It says, And after these things, I, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, for He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. Okay, so notice it's referring back to the judgment of the great whore. This is a good thing that's happened. <clears throat> Folks in heaven are praising the Lord for this and it says that God avenged the blood of the, His servants at her hand. Okay? So notice again how end times Babylon is the one who pays for the blood of the martyrs. Now I want us to get this because I think if we get this that it's going to help us kind of understand a few things about just how God works and about why this uh, the wrath of God period is just so bad. Because right? if you ever, I mean, do you ever read the book of Revelation and think, wow, isn't this a little excessive? Well, actually it isn't, alright? Remember, God, He does all things well. God is always just. just. He's not going to do anything excessive. But at the same time, while we read the book of Revelation, we think, man, this is a little extreme. How many of you have ever read other parts of history and thought, why didn't God do anything? Have you ever read, you know, you read about the Inquisitions and things like that. It's like, why wasn't God doing anything? You know, these people, they've never paid for all the terrible things they've done. So I want you to understand this concept, okay? So, because this concept too, it shouldn't be hard to understand because we see many examples like this in the Bible. So basically what we've been talking about the last two weeks is how end times Babylon they're going to pay for the blood of all the martyrs that I believe that have uh, died in the last 2,000 years. I believe Jerusalem paid for the blood of the martyrs in 70 A.D., all that had died from Abel till Jesus Christ. But I believe all the ones after that are going to be paid for by end times Babylon. And you might think, well, that's not fair. You know, Why are they paying for it when they are not the ones who did all of it? Well, I don't have to necessarily understand why, but I do understand that the Bible does teach that type of thing takes place. So, <clears throat> pray for my voice that I get uh, through this whole message. So, first off, we do know that the sins of the entire world were paid for by Jesus Christ, were they not? You say, you know, why should end times Babylon pay for the blood of these martyrs when they weren't the ones that did all of it? Well... We better be glad that things can work that way because the fact that if they didn't work that way, if you had to pay for your own sins and that was the only way, then we would all be in trouble. But thankfully, it doesn't work that way and Jesus paid for our sins. And so, you say, well then why is there payment for sins later for other people? I'll tell you why. Because they didn't accept the payment of Jesus Christ. They could have accepted that, but instead they said, you know what? We'd rather work our way to heaven. We would rather pay our own way and you know what? God is not going to accept that payment. So they could have been cleared by the blood of Jesus Christ, but they chose not to. So we see also, and we're not going to take time to go back and read it, but in Second Samuel chapter 21, there was, um, you know, God was punishing Israel. David inquires of the Lord. He's wondering why. And he said it was because of Saul slaying the Gibeonites. And so, Saul's dead, but God is judging Israel for the sin that Saul did. And we see in the story that David goes to the Gibeonites to try to make things right with them because you know he wants God's blessing back on their nation. And we see they ended up slaying some of Saul's sons you know, as payment for the sins of Saul. So you say, man, that doesn't really seem fair. Well, here's the thing. Blood is required for those who shed innocent blood. That's a payment. That goes back to Genesis 9, 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so think about this. God instituted, God ordained that, you know, those who shed blood, that we shed their blood. Okay? There needs to be 
payment. We defile our land. We hurt our land when we don't do these things. And folks, put, locking people up in prison for the rest of their life doesn't count. Okay? We should be putting these people to death. And I believe one of the reasons this time period is going to be so bad is because man has failed to punish sin the way God ordained. Because of the fact that we have not been putting people to death, you know, all we're just guilty of so much blood. And folks, the I mean, the United States, it's just dripping with the blood of innocence. Not just because of abortion, but because of the fact that we have, we've let murderers get away with killing people. And we've not shed their blood. And so that's been going on for years and years and years. So when you think about the fact that we have failed to do our job because we haven't got the stomach for it. You know, we haven't got the stomach to deal with the fact that sometimes, you know, they botch a lethal injection and the guy ends up suffering. We haven't got the stomach for that, so we've got to ban lethal injection. Alright? You know what? I personally don't feel bad when they suffer from lethal injection. But at the same time, you know, we haven't got the stomach to watch people hang. We haven't got the stomach to watch somebody die by a firing squad or an electric chair or something like that. And so we don't have the stomach for that. But the thing is, God called for it. And because we're not doing it, one of these days, God's going to have to come back and He's going to have to make everything right. And you know what that means? He's going to have to tread the wine press of the fierceness of His wrath. The blood is going to flow from the horses, up to the horses' bridles. So, you know, understand, you know, these bleeding hearts that don't want to deal with sin, you know, God hasn't changed. Okay? Blood will be shed. Because of those who have shed innocent blood. And since we're not doing it, God's going to do it in the end times. And we see that it's going to be nasty. So it's just the way it works. So, verse 3 says, And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen. Alleluia. Notice in this how those who are righteous and holy rejoice at the judgment of the wicked. Okay? You know, whenever we rejoice at the death of the wicked, you know, people tell us we're not Christ-like. People tell us we're not very good Christians. You know, when Pastor Jimenez, when he goes and he rejoices at the death of a bunch of sodomites, you know, he gets protested. And he even has Christians, he even has Baptists, saying that he isn't Christ-like. You know, you have him celebrating the death of the wicked. You know, while you have Josh Tice on his Facebook and Twitter and stuff, he's saying, pray for Orlando. You know, isn't it interesting the differences you see there? What do we see him doing in heaven? Do we see him crying in heaven? Do we see them, you know, saying, pray for Babylon? You know, after this horrible destruction? No. You know what they're doing? They're rejoicing. Because this was of God. It was what they deserved. And so when people tell you you're not Christ-like for rejoicing, you know, when you know, the wicked are destroyed, it's because they don't know Christ. They're talking about a different Jesus. They're talking about Hollywood Jesus. They're talking about liberal church Jesus, NIV Jesus, whatever. They're not talking about the real Jesus. So verse 5 says, And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So this is going to be a great moment in heaven. So Babylon's been destroyed, and what's everybody doing? They're celebrating, we're singing, we're praising God. I mean, a great multitude it's going to sound like the voice of many waters. And I can't wait for this moment. It's going to be something that we're going to be there to experience and it will be something to behold. But verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and His wife hath made herself ready. Now, a few things about this. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this tonight. I'm probably going to say more about it in a couple of weeks. But the uh, the Lamb's wife, the bride, who is she? All right. Now, the Bible does not really say a whole lot about the bride, but I'm just going to tell you briefly what I believe and what I'm going to prove easily 
in a couple of weeks, is that the bride of Christ is all the saved. Right? It's every saved person who has ever lived. Right? The dispensationalists, they act like the church is, you know, the New Testament Gentile church is the bride of Jesus, and then the Jews are the bride of God the, <coughs> God the Father. That's garbage. You know what? I wonder what Sluter does with that since he has jumped on that, you know, oneness idea. I wonder what he does with that. I'll have to ask him about that next time I'm arguing with him about something. But anyway, uh, you know, I don't know what they say with that, but the truth is, there's only one bride, folks. There's only one bride. There's only one people of God. Jesus broke down the middle wall partition. Jesus made both one. Okay? There is only, there's only one bride. And it's, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but the re, the false assumptions that are out there on the bride are based off of horrible interpretations of vague verses. Or not even really vague verses. It's, I mean, the verses are actually really clear, but they'll reference the bride. But it, the thing is, you know, these verses aren't specifically talking about, you know, who the body of Christ is made up of. You know, it'll say like, you know, husbands love your wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Right there, that's a pa- that passage is about how husbands should love their wives. It's not a passage explaining who the church is. It's not even trying to do that in there. Or who the bride is in there. That's not what that passage is about. But let me show you one example too of where people will take this verse here and without using other scriptures in the book of Revelation to interpret it, it kind of gives them license, they feel, to take this verse in stupid places. But look what it says again, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife hath made herself ready. Alright? Now you've got the Baptist Briders that are out there. Okay? And folks, the Baptist Brider doctrine is just stupid. That's all there is. It's just stupid. It's a dumb Southern doctrine. Alright? You say, why is it Southern? It's something that's big down in the Bible Belt because everybody's Baptist in the Bible Belt. And they've all got to find a way to distinguish themselves from each other. They've all got to find a way to prove who's most Baptist. And so you've got the Baptist writers have sprung from that. <clears throat> but what they'll do is they'll say, his wife hath made herself ready. Well, how do you make yourself ready? You know, it doesn't say in this passage. What does that mean? Alright, well, well, they'll tell you what it means. It means, you know what, it means you've got to be... You've got to get baptized. You've got to get baptized in the right kind of church. You know, you've got to get baptized by immersion in a Baptist church. And it's got to be a Baptist church that you know, can trace its lineage all the way back to John the Baptist. Alright? That's, that, that's what they teach. And they'll use, his wife hath made herself ready. And this, this, this kind of junk is what goes on in the South. You know, a guy can get up and he can preach. He can go to a Baptist conference. And he can get up Read just this one verse. You know, turn your Bibles to Revelation 19, 7. He'll read that line. His wife hath made herself ready. He won't read any other passage. He won't read any other passage. And then what he'll do, he might, you know, he'll start talking about how the bride is the church. He'll just say it like it's an established fact. Like nobody refutes it. Nobody denies it. Nobody does deny it. And that, you know, mess of hillbillies are preaching to down there that don't know anything about the Bible. But they'll do that, and then they'll start teaching all this Baptist brider junk. Well, you know what? It's actually pretty easy to figure out how this bride has made herself ready. In fact, we can figure it out just from the book of Revelation. Look what it says in Revelation 1.5. It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I submit to you, that we were made ready by the blood of Jesus Christ. He cleaned us up. It says in Revelation 5, 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Once again, 
the blood of Christ. It, he, he is worthy. He made us ready. 7.13 And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in, arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto them, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Guess what made our robes white? It was not how good we were. Alright? It was the blood of Christ. That's what made them white. Alright? So, uh, Revelation 19.8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Right there. The righteousness of the saints. You know, where did your righteousness come from? Hey, you know, and folk, we've seen where our righteousness comes from already. It came from the blood of Jesus Christ. It's called imputed righteousness. Okay? Look at Romans 4 and verse 8. And then I'm going to... Don't let me forget. I, I, I got to share with you a Brian Sharp theory I, read, I, I heard him preach years ago. I don't know if he still subscribes to this idea, but it's, it's one of the dumbest things you'll ever hear. Unless it's unless it can only be rivaled by Ruckmanite theories, you know. But anyway, says in the four beasts, each had them six wings about him. Or wait, no, I'm in Revelation. I can't get out of Revelation. I was like, that's not what I'm looking for. Romans, Romans four, Romans four verses eight says, "Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin." All right. Now, if we're talking about the righteousness of the saints, I I really hope. These guys aren't planning on talking about their righteousness. I really hope they're not planning on talking about how they got baptized. Because, you know, what if, what if there was a break in that chain? You know what I'm saying? What if one of the preachers lied? What if one of those pastors in the line lied? You know? I'm really glad we're not basing things off man. You know, I'm glad we're not basing it off our righteousness. But the Bible says, Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute sin. Come at this blessedness, blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was re- reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. God told Abraham he was righteous when he believed, when God told him, You're gonna, I'll multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and he believed God. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness. This was years and years before he was circumcised. Okay? He was imputed righteousness when he had faith. And it says in verse 11, He received the sign of circumcision to seal the righteousness of the faith, which he had being yet uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Alright, folks. When I stand before God in heaven... I'm going to have a white robe. And it's going to be very white. My robe is going to look great. Not a spot on it. Alright? It's going to beat that brand new t-shirt. You know, my t-shirt I'm wearing right now under my shirt is pretty dingy. Alright? You know, we all have our... our anybody ever gotten YPS on your white shirts? That's why I like wearing colored shirts. I get YP, YPS all the time. It's called yellow pit syndrome. Alright? You know, uh, we all... We all have those problems. But let me tell you, my white robe that I have in heaven, it's going to be beautifully white. You know why? Because of my righteousness that's on it. You say, man, you really think you're good. Nope. My righteousness is His righteousness. I have been imputed His righteousness because of my faith. We are taught that throughout the New Testament. We are taught that throughout the book of Revelation that we are clean from His own blood, yet people will take these verses and then they ignore everything else and then they're going to try to teach Baptist brighter doctrine. They're going to teach you, you know, if you don't stay in good standing in your Baptist church, you get thrown out. You know, you could lose, you know, your, you won't lose your salvation, but you will no longer be a bride. You know, you will be one of those in outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not talking about hell. That's talking about the, there's going to be those onlookers at the marriage supper. Alright, this is just stupid Baptist brighter doctrine. But folks, the Bible's real clear how we made our robes white. The Bible's very clear how we made ourselves ready. It was not by works, it was by faith in Jesus Christ. 
And we have evidence of that throughout the book of Revelation. Yet they'll take these verses by themselves and try to teach something else. That, my friends, is garbage. That, my friends, is heresy. And we reject that. And you know what? My robe is going to be extremely white. And you know what? My robe is going to be thick enough to hide my nakedness. And why do you say that? Brian Sharp has a theory that, you know, everybody's going to receive a white robe. But he talked about how some of them are going to be layered. Alright? And how, you know, depending on, you know, how good we were or whatever, you know, it's like we get layers added to it to hide our nakedness, basically. And how some peoples are going to be pretty thin and we're able to see through them. And I'm just like... And listen, I heard him preach that back when I thought he hung the moon and I was just like... That's stupid. All right, that that is really stupid. What's the point of a wearing a white robe that doesn't cover your nakedness? I, I don't know what this guy's. I don't know what this guy's thinking and where he's at. You know, that's what happens. You know, you, you're wrong on Israel. You know, it, it just messes you up. All right, I think you know you mess with Israel, you mess with the people of God. All right, the real people of God. God's going to mess with your mind. You're going to teach stupid stuff like that. And uh, I think I still have the cassettes that have that on it. I have to listen to a lot of junk to find it. It's probably in Revelation 19. I'll have to go back and try to find that. But just you know, that's just stupid, folks. Our 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 robes they're going to be white. They're going to be thick. And uh, you've got nothing to worry about if you've put your faith and trust in Christ. You're ready. Your robe's going to be fine. It's going to be clean. So I'm not worried about it at all. Verse 9 says, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Not everybody's going to get called to the marriage supper. You know? You've got to make sure you're good enough. You've got to make sure you're actually a Baptist. But, you know, who are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Go over and turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Now, you know, this is not an identical you know, parallel that you see here, but I do think it's just uh, another example, something that we can look at and kind of compare some things to. But this is a parable that Jesus said in verse 1. says, Jesus answered, spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner and my ox and my fatlings are killed. And all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. And they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, what do you all think this is talking about right here? I believe this is talking about how the Jews rejected Christ. They got invited to the marriage. But they rejected. And what did they do? I mean, they killed the prophets. And then they eventually killed Jesus Christ Himself. And so, they suffered. They were, they were punished. So says, when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent forth his armies and destroyed his murders, burned up their city. And then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now let me ask you something. Why did the, why were the Jews not worthy? Was it because they were too sinful? Or was it because they didn't believe on Christ? It's because they didn't believe on Christ. Okay? What was it that made us worthy? It was because we believed. On Christ. That's it. So it says when the king came in, came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto them, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having wedding garments? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So understand that what gets us, you know, worthy is believing on Christ. Okay? And, you know, it gives another example here of somebody who sneaks in. All right, one who doesn't have a wedding garment. 
But how do you think we get that wedding garment? We get that by faith in Jesus Christ. And you're not going to get in any other way. And you know what? None of the Jews are going to get in by trying to sneak in, by trying to steal the land or anything like that. No, they got to get in by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes us worthy. That's what gives us the garment that we need, that white garment that is appropriate. And when it says many are called, but few are chosen, all right, what makes us chosen? What makes us elect? Is it because God just handpicked us? No, what did God choose? God chose that those who are of faith be saved. And so, there's many who are called. Alright? But, if you are chosen, not everyone believes. So, um, look at verse... Well, so, before we get to verse 10. So, here's a question, alright? And this is something I've, I've, I've been challenged on. And I, honestly, I don't have a super strong opinion. I'm not going to get dogmatic on this. But... Do we actually eat a marriage supper in heaven? All right. How many of you have ever heard him talk about the marriage supper before? You know, and talked about all, what we're going to, how we're going to eat. You know, beans and cornbread, biscuits and gravy, and you know, steak and eggs, and you know, or whatever. You know, we, we've all heard those things, and I've said those things before. I say it all the time. And you know what? Here's the simple. You know, I'm just going to admit it. Well, I talk about you know, steak and eggs, and biscuits and gravy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All right. There, we're not going to be eating any meat. There's nothing dead in heaven. Alright? There's no... I don't think we're going to be killing animals and eating them in heaven. Alright? But, here's the question. Do we actually eat a, a wedding, a marriage supper? Alright? Brian Sharp also tells a story about how while we're having this marriage supper, the lamb, you know, out in the parking lot, there's going to be this fight going on with Michael the Archangel and Satan. Right, when he's about to be cast out of heaven. And that's another story for another day. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of speculation about the marriage supper. A lot of people talk about it. But do we actually eat a meal in heaven? Now, the Bible is actually not real clear about whether we eat in heaven. In fact, many people believe that the, the marriage supper takes place on earth and it's not us eating, but it's animals eating flesh of the people who died. That just may very well be true. Alright? Now here's why I think it's possible we could be eating. Alright? One, I want it to be true. You know, I've been looking forward to that supper for a long time. <laughs> I've been hearing about it my whole life, you know. But at the end, when you look at Matthew chapter 22, when you look at just marriages and weddings, it's pretty common for there to be a feast, isn't it? I mean, isn't it just kind of a normal thing? You have a feast after a wedding. And so, I tend to think we probably will do some eating. Alright? That's just, but that's my opinion. I don't have a whole lot of scripture to prove that. Okay? And I'll show you where that, where people get this idea that there is not an actual supper in heaven that takes place at something on earth. I'll show you that in a little bit when we get to it. But I, I do know, there is going to be a supper that takes place on earth where the birds are eating the flesh of kings. For sure. I still think there could be a marriage supper too. I'm still kind of holding out for it. And right now I'm hungry and I'm really thinking I really want there to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. But anyway, um, and maybe I really want that because I'm hungry right now and the thought of an extra meal just sounds good. But anyway, um, look at verse 17. Uh, so let's look at verse... Yeah, look at verse 17. It says, And I saw an, or saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven... Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings. So right there you see a supper mentioned. Said, and that's not going to be in heaven. This is something that's going to be on earth. So that, you know, some people say that's the marriage supper. Well, it doesn't call it the marriage supper. It calls it, you know, the supper of the great God. Alright? You know, it kind of fits too because that battle is the battle of the great day of God Almighty. But, you know, it's not, this isn't something I'm actually going to fight people over, alright? You know, I think we can agree to maybe disagree and have our own opinions on this stuff. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of speculation. But look at verse 10. It says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I think that's interesting too, because 
This verse comes right after these verses where it talks about his wife hath made herself ready. It talks about the garment, which is the righteousness of the saints. Um, it, to her it was granted she be arrayed in fine linen. You know, for the, uh, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And then, here John goes down, and he falls down before the feet of one to worship him. And this is just, this is just a fellow believer here. This is just another Christian. This isn't Jesus Christ. And he just said, hey, I'm one of you. Alright? I look really good right now. I look really holy and righteous right now. You know why? Because like you, I have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So once again, here we see somebody who is wearing one of these white robes. He doesn't talk about his testimony. He doesn't talk about his righteousness. He said, man, I'm like you. I've got the testimony of Jesus Christ. So once for people to take these verses and to try to add something to becoming the bride and add something to getting these robes, that is heresy. All right? It could just be stupidity, but you know, either way, it's heresy. Uh, people who say, you know, bring this junk up, are they not saved? You know, I think there's plenty of reason to doubt. It could, once again, it could just be stupidity, but it's definitely heresy to teach that. So, um, everyone who is in heaven, from the first one there to the last one, will be there by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every one of them. The bride will be all the saved. From the beginning to the end. There will not be a Jewish bride and a Gentile bride. It will all be one bride. So now what we're about to see in this passage in verse 11 is we are going to see what is referred to as the battle of Armageddon. Okay? And you all know that this is not fought in Armageddon. I proved before. I'm not going to prove it again. This battle takes place right outside of Jerusalem. That's where this battle takes place. And so this battle should be called the battle of the great day of God Almighty, which is in Revelation 16, verse 14. So, look what it says in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Okay? Whoever said that Jesus doesn't judge? Alright? And a lot of people are saying, Jesus doesn't judge. Yeah, he does. And he does it in righteousness. What does that mean? It means there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. Because that's what happens when there's righteous judgment. And and here's another thing too I want to point out. Because the pre-tribbers all teach that behold he cometh with clouds. They teach that's what we're seeing here in Revelation 19. But notice it says behold he cometh with clouds. Not on a white horse. It's in Matthew 24. Then shall ye see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They also say that's Revelation 19. They say when He gathers together His elect from the four winds. They say that's Revelation 19. Now, we don't see any of this in Revelation 19. We see Him coming on a white horse. We don't see Him gathering His elect. We see His elect are already with Him, following Him. We don't see anything like that here in Revelation 19. You know, and they love to bring up Matthew 24. It's like, we don't see the dead rising. Therefore, it's different. Yet, I mean, Revelation 19 is so different than Matthew 24. It's not even funny. You know, and what they try to do, they take that one verse. Sluter likes the verse, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And that proves, because it, says, it talks about the fowls, feeding on the flesh. But notice, it's not just eagles. It's talking about every bird that's mentioned here. When the Bible says, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. It said that right after it's saying how Jesus is coming, it's going to be like lightning shineth out of the east from the west. It's been talking about how fast it's going to take place. Okay, The rapture is going to take place quickly. Jesus come and it's going to be quickly. It's going to happen fast. And eagles, almost every time you see eagles mentioned in the Bible, it's referring to their speed. That's what it's referring to. But he just sees eagles and he connects it to birds. It's one of them stupid Ruckmanite cross-references. You know, and, then, and that's how he connects Matthew 24 with Revelation 19. Folks, I'm putting it nicely. That's stupid. Okay? That's horrible. Horrible interpretation of the Bible. Yet, many people accept it. Why? Because they have to. Because if Matthew 24 is talking about the rapture, 
then they have to admit it comes, when Matthew 24 says it comes, immediately after the tribulation of those days. And that's why they've got to make it about Revelation 19. And so, it's just foolish. We don't see anybody getting caught up here in Revelation 19. We see people coming down in Revelation 19. We don't see Jesus coming on a cloud. We see Him coming on a white horse. And He's coming to judge and to make war. So it says, "...in His eyes was a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns, and He had a name written that no man knew but He Himself." And so, you know what? Don't bother trying to figure out that name. I don't know what that name is, and I'm not going to try to figure it out. If nobody knows except Jesus, we're not going to figure it out. We're not Rachmanites. We don't think we figured everything out. There's some things we don't know. Verse 13, "...and he, He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God." The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. All right, and this is one of the reasons I believe it's us, because it was just mentioned earlier that we were received white robes, which is you know what that was uh, that were you know clean. It was the righteousness of the saints. I believe this is us following him. Verse fifteen: and Out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of Almighty God. So notice, Jesus is angry here. All right? This is another thing that the liberal churches, they don't like to talk about this verse right here. you got these clowns too that try to act like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. you got mean God in the Old Testament, nice God in the New Testament. Folks, He's still the same in the New Testament. He's just been giving us a chance to repent. He's been holding back. But folks, He's angry with the wicked every day. Jesus is angry right now with the wickedness that's going on on the earth. And pretty soon, we are going to... that that, that, uh, That anger is going to be revealed and it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be very ugly. And so... You notice how it says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's not going to rule with the feather duster. He's going to rule with the rod of iron. And people do. They love to talk about how... And this is just another thing that just makes me sick. All right? just, there's, some thing, there's some stupidity that's been produced on a mass level. Okay? And for example, too, you know, peace on earth. All right? People love peace on earth. They love that. You know, peace on earth. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And you know, whenever we talk about peace... We're supposed to picture a bunch of hippies, you know, sitting out in the middle of a meadow, strumming on a guitar, smoking pot, or something like that. You know, that's what they want us to picture. But let me tell you something about peace, alright? Do you know how we get peace, real peace? It's through ruling with a rod of iron. It's actually going to involve a lot of bloodshed. Including all them hippies that are out there smoking their pot, you know, and fornicating. Okay, that's what they don't realize. Look what it says. So, in verse uh, 15, or whatever, verse 15, but, so he's going to uh, tread the winepress of the fiercest of his wrath. So people do, they love to talk about how Jesus is about peace, but they don't ever want to talk about why there's peace. Okay? And the reason Jesus is going to be bringing peace, it's not because everybody's going to see him and be like, they're just all of a sudden going to love him. When they see just how sweet and how friendly he is, the world's just going to love him. Or like Bill Grady thinks, you know, the Jews are going to see him and then they're just all going to get saved then when they see him. No. That's not, you know, they're going to mourn all right, when they see him because they know they're in big trouble. And they will be in big trouble. Here's why there's going to be peace. It's because he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And it's going to start out with him destroying a multitude with this two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. He's going to speak the Word of God and he's going to kill probably millions on this one day. Millions are probably going to be killed by Jesus Christ Himself. So I don't like that picture. That's the picture the Bible paints. And that's what justice does. And He is going to bring peace to this earth by ruling with a rod of iron. And so... Listen, Jesus showed His love and mercy when He paid for the sins of the world on the cross. He did. But you know what? The day of salvation is now past here. And now it's time for wrath. 
It says in verse 16, He hath on his vesture and on his thigh an aim written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. So right there, that's what some people believe. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Alright? I don't know. We definitely won't be eaten if that's the case. Alright? We're not going to be... But the birds of the earth will be. It says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and within the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he, uh, he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that had worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Alright, so notice, this is going to be a bloody day. And folks, this is, this is just day one. Okay? This is day one, and there is there's going to be peace for a thousand years. But folks, that peace is not going to come just because Jesus showed up and everyone just all of a sudden, once they see Jesus, they're just like, man, I now want to be good. No, you know why there's going to be peace? Because Jesus is going to rule in righteousness. Now, what is that rule going to look like? Read the Old Testament. Okay, go read the Old Testament law. Folks, the sin nature is not going to be gone from people. If there, there has always been adultery, there has always been fornication, there has always been homosexuality. But you know what? It has never been properly dealt with by a righteous government. Never has. But you know what? There is going to be millions of glorified people during this time. We will be one of them. We will be ruling the world with Christ. And guess what laws we're going to be enforcing? We're going to be enforcing those Old Testament moral laws. You know what that means? That means we're going to be stoning homos during that time. And folks, that's why there's going to be peace on earth. Do you realize, and, and we're not capable of it because we're so sinful. But theoretically speaking, if we just all of a sudden, without being a glorified body, just as a society, started following Old Testament law, you realize we'd have paradise on this earth? We would have peace on this earth? But, you know, for some, that would mean them getting killed. We would be putting pedophiles to death. We would be putting the homos to death. That spouse that you know cheated on her husband... She wouldn't have to suffer as a result, or he wouldn't have to suffer, depending on which one it was. You know why? Because we'd be putting the other one to death. And then they'd be free to remarry. I mean, folks, you, I don't think we realize just how happy the world's going to be when we start following these things. But you know what? The world has always rejected God's law. You know why? Because they don't believe it. They didn't believe in Him. They're not saved. But when we are following God's law, it's going to it's going to work. You know, Pastor Joe Major, he gets criticized all the time because he illustrated how these liberal preachers, you know, are all going to have to listen to Pastor Anderson, you know, when he's telling them to put the sodomites to death in the millennial kingdom. Just kind of illustrating. And I do I believe, you know, some of these, you know, little skinny jean trendies, if any of them happen to be saved, they're going to be in for a big surprise when they're told, hey, this is how you're, you know, this is how these things are going to be dealt with. When a homo shows up in their town that they're ruling over. And you know what they're going to find out? They're going to have to find out. You put them to death. You stone them. And you know what? During this time, we'll be able to, they'll be able to say, He that hath no sins, let him cast the first stone. And you know what? There's going to be a bunch of us there that aren't going to have any sins because we've been glorified. We've been changed to a body like Christ. And you know what? We'll be able to throw the rocks. You say, well, we wouldn't do that. You know, Jesus didn't throw a stone at the woman then. Yes, but understand, this is a different time. Okay? Jesus has just killed a multitude 
You know? And so he we will be doing it then. So, you know, just the 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 people who come up with this crazy stuff they do, they've never read all of Revelation. They're too busy reading Revelation 19 and trying to figure out how we get the white white robes, what righteousness we have to do. What do we have to do to be the bride? Instead of figuring out like the rest of us have who are saved, that you know what, we become the bride by believing on Christ. We get white robes by believing on Christ. They're white and clean because we have His righteousness. That is why. So, another thing to notice too about this fight, I mean, notice this. How the armies are gathered together in verse 19 to make war against Him that sat on the horse and against His army. But then notice how the very next thing is said. Alright, so they, I mean, there's enough people gathered that that valley of Jehoshaphat outside of Jerusalem, it's going to be, I mean, there's going to be a river of blood. There's going to be that many people. And notice how it just says, He came and He cast the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. It doesn't look like it was much of a fight, was it? It actually looks like Jesus is going to win this real easy. You know why? Because He's Jesus. He's the creator of everything. And the world can bring the best that they've got and it's not going to do a bit of good. He's going to defeat them just with the word of his mouth. You know, and I, I do, I believe that two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. I don't, I don't believe personally that we're going to see a physical sword come out of his mouth. I believe it's just going to be him speaking to the earth. And you say, well, you know, the Bible says two-edged sword, it's got to be two-edged sword. But the Bible says, the, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? Jesus is the Word. And so when He speaks, it's going to do some serious damage and it's going to be a sight to behold. So everything that we've read about in the trumpets, the vials, all of those things are leading up to this main event that we see in Revelation 19. This battle of the great day of God Almighty. It's all going to lead up to this battle that I think people have intentionally forgotten that it doesn't take place out in the Megiddo Valley. It takes place at Jerusalem. Okay? This battle is going to be fought at Jerusalem, at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And this is where the stone that's cut out without hands smites the feet of that statue that we see in Daniel that ends up growing into a great mountain. Why is that? Jesus took care of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, now he's taking care of the seed of the beast. And that takes place in Jerusalem. He's going to strike that kingdom first, and then he's got that mountain, it's going to grow throughout the whole earth. He deals with things in Jerusalem first, and then he's going to end up dealing with the rest of the world. I believe that's what's going to take place. So this event, it begins the time where we have a thousand years of peace. This is, that's where the wolf and the lamb lie together, where the child will play on the whole of the asp. And Jesus showed us how to live life on earth before, but here, he's going to also, you know, with his life on earth, you know, he showed us how to live it. He lived a perfect life. Now he's going to show us how governments run. That's what he's going to do now. There will still be sin in the world, but there's not going to be near as much when we have a righteous government. And he said, you know, people do that too. Man, it's like, man, we're going to be stoning people all the time. You know, it's just going to be, it's just going to be a one, you know, one big bloodbath. You know, and they they'll say these stupid things. You know, if we put people to death for everything that the Bible says, then we wouldn't have any people left. Well, actually, that's not true. Second of all, if we did put people to death for the things the Bible said we should, then not as many people would do those things. People would stop doing that stuff. Oh, we're going to get killed if we do that? Well, I guess I'll stick with this wife. You know, I, I guess, I, I, guess I, I, I won't do that. You know, you know, reprobates, they're going to do wicked no matter what. There's nothing you can do to stop a reprobate from sinning except kill them. Alright, that, that's, that's the only thing you can do to stop them. But most people would not do the things they do if we had the right kind of punishments. In Jordan, they don't have drunk driving because they shoot you if you're caught drinking and driving. No trial. They just shoot you. So guess what? They don't have drunk driving. 
So the reason we think that, we have that mentality, is because sin is running rampant in our country because we do nothing about it. If we did something about it, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't, if we, if we put homos to death like we're supposed to, then they wouldn't be out there defiling all these little kids, messing up their minds, you know, making them become the next homos. I just read one statistic. Did you know the typical pedophile, by the time he gets caught, it's his 117th time doing it. He's done it. He's done that same crime on average, 117 times. Folks, I, this, this thing's getting out of hand with, with perversion. And we need Jesus to come back so He can rule with that rod of iron. And th- that, that's what we need and that's what we're going to get. And boy, Pastor Trendy, if he's even saved, he is going to be in for a wake-up call. When he sees that homo getting stoned that first time, the last thing he's going to want to do is wear his skinny jeans because he's not even going to want to look like a homo when he sees the way they're being treated during that time. He'll lose his skinny jeans so fast, he's going to man up so quick it's not even funny once he he sees how it's going to go down then. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to a righteous government. I'm sick of our government. They disgust me. They make me sick. I'm sick of listening to Christian people praise politicians. just saw a missionary today praising John McCain. Out of the blue. Just, are, we, are, we, are you serious? We're going to praise these scumbags? All right, we ought to be ashamed of, of our politicians. You know, we ought to have pictures of our politicians hung up so we can look at them and cry from embarrassment every time we're mind. Maybe it'll make us humble. No. We've got a bunch of Fox News Baptists. What do they do? They go do their stupid capital connection every year. They kiss the rears of these politicians. And then they sing their little hymns and stuff on the Capitol steps and everything when they should be there on their faces crying before God. They should be at the Capitol steps trying to attack the place. That's what they should be doing. But if anything, at least be on their faces before God praying with their clothes rent and dust and ashes on their head because of our sick, perverted country. But anyway, those people are those people are going to be in for a big surprise. I'm looking forward to that today. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for uh, helping my voice get through this message. Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to to learn from this. Lord, help us to um, look for and pray for a righteous government. Help us to understand what a righteous government is. Lord, unfortunately, people have perverted your name. They've perverted your actions. They've perverted your word to the point that people have just messed up expectations of what a righteous government looks like. And I pray to help people to get back to a biblical mindset on these things. And we'll start uh, following the example that you left us in your word. And I pray you'll preserve our country as a result of us doing that. Lord, if not, Lord, uh, just go ahead and just let us be judged. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's